Ake Ake Keakaha. The story of number 75 squadron. Welcome to the number 75 squadron story. I'm your host Dave Homewood. In this series we will be tracing the history of what was perhaps New Zealand's most famous Air Force squadron, number 75 squadron. We will be doing this by delving into the squadron's history and by hearing the personal memories of squadron veterans telling their stories of life on 75 squadron throughout the various eras. In this episode we will look at the origins of number 75 squadron and discover how it came to be formed in the first place. We'll also look at the Vickers Wellington aircraft it flew in the first few years as a New Zealand squadron and hear from veterans who flew in them. So to look at the beginning of the New Zealand Bomber Squadron, at the time, under the inspired guidance of the Royal New Zealand Air Force's first Chief of Air Staff, Group Captain Sir Rafe Cochran, the Air Force was undergoing a massive expansion program. The RNZAF had hitherto been an underfunded and neglected Air Force. It had just two stations, Wigram in Christchurch and Hobsonville in Auckland. As part of the Defence Force, it was incapable of carrying out its role, till Cochrane was given the free reign to develop, expand and empower the RNZAF. His plans saw three new large stations planned for construction. At Whanuapai in Auckland, at Ahakia in the Manawatu, and at Woodburn at Blenheim. Cochrane also reorganised the Territorial Air Force into an actual flying force. Through 1938 and 1939, three territorial squadrons would be equipped with the second-hand Blackburn Baffin and Vickers Vincent reconnaissance bombers. They were based at Hobsonville, Rongatai and Wigram. But Cochrane knew, with the war clouds forming in Europe and political instability in the Pacific region, three weekend warrior units of nearly obsolescent biplane bombers would be insufficient for the defence of New Zealand's shores, if the unthinkable should happen and war was declared. Therefore, he selected a brand new bomber type to be purchased and to enter service with the RNZAF as well. The Vickers Wellington. The purchase of 30 Wellington bombers was announced by the New Zealand government on the 18th of May 1938. The type had not yet even entered service with the Royal Air Force at that time and was therefore untried and unproven, but everything pointed towards it looking to be the perfect aircraft for the role the RNZF needed to fulfil, long-range coastal reconnaissance and defence. At the time of the announcement, the RNZF's bomber force consisted of just a handful of the Territorial Air Force Blackburn Baffins that had recently entered service in the general reconnaissance role, plus just 11 Vickers Wildebeests in regular service, although the Wildes were actually being used mainly for training pilots and aircrew, aerial photography work, transport and communications work, and anything else the RNZF required of them. 
so the addition of 30 modern Vickers Wellingtons would have been a huge boost to the morale of the Air Force, and the Defence Force as a whole. The RNZF was also expecting the first two of five ordered airspeed Oxfords to arrive in New Zealand within weeks of the announcement. These twin-engine aircraft were planned to be used for communications work in aerial survey flying, but also would become excellent multi-engine trainers for future pilots who could transition onto the Wellingtons. Upon the announcement of ordering the 30 bombers, it was stated the cost to New Zealand would be £750,000. That is a considerable outlay indeed at the time, and equates to £25,000 per aircraft, which is phenomenal compared with the cost of just £200 per aircraft that the government had just paid for the second-hand Vickers Vincents that were to complement this bomber force. In fact, all told, the Wellingtons cost even more again, with the actual cost of the 30 aircraft including separate orders for ammunition and spare parts, rounding out at £962,000, which when translated into modern New Zealand currency, is close to $100 million now. On top of purchasing the aircraft, there are of course many other expenditures involved, such as the training of new crews and of the ground crews. The aircraft needed somewhere to be based, and as mentioned, a Harker and Fenuapai were being built to accommodate the two new Wellington squadrons. The cost of constructing Ohakia was put at an estimated £507,000. It's two concrete hangars being built there to house the Wellingtons, each with the 220 by 160 foot footprint, cost £160,000. And up at Fenuapai, an identical layout of two more of these massive concrete hangars were also to be built. So, this was a massive investment for New Zealand when they had just a population of 1.6 million people. The ordered aircraft went onto the production list to be built by Vickers alongside many other RAF aircraft. It would be some time before the New Zealand machines would start rolling off the production lines. The first Air Force unit to receive the Wellingtons for operational service was Number 9 Squadron Royal Air Force at Stratus Hall in October 1938. The New Zealand aircraft would be ready in mid-1939 by which time the type would have had many months of service and a certain amount of experience would have been built up around the type. The RNZAF's plan was to send men to Britain who would form a squadron in June 1939 with ferry groups planned to ferry the bombers out to New Zealand in five phases spaced out between August 1939 and April 1940. As well as men being sent from New Zealand to train up on the Wellingtons for this country it was realised that New Zealand had many experienced men already in Britain serving with the Royal Air Force and on short service commissions. It was considered that many of them might transfer over to the Royal New Zealand Air Force and join this new squadron. The criteria was that the pilots had to have at least two years previous Air Force service and not be over 28 years of age. So the Royal Air Force issued an order offering New Zealanders serving in the RAF either currently on short or medium service commissions or those who had finished that service and were on the reserve to volunteer to transfer to the Royal New Zealand Air Force for the special unit. Should they make the transfer, they would then be put on a short service commission with the RNZAF. Even New Zealanders who were airmen pilots in the RAF were offered to be commissioned as pilot officers 
if they were accepted for the New Zealand squadron. The new squadron sought pilots for the ferry flights and around 40 to 50 aircrew to go to New Zealand and serve in the new bombers. It was intended that all 30 aircraft would have New Zealanders as the first and second pilot. The RNZF's liaison officer in London, squadron leader Freddie Newell, held interviews at New Zealand House with pilots serving in the Royal Air Force, who hoped to join the New Zealand squadron. The first airmen from New Zealand arrived in May 1939 to begin training with the Royal Air Force in maintaining the Wellingtons on a station at Norfolk. These included Corporal Colin Knight, an aircraftsman, Edwin Williams, Don McGlashan, Ron Anderson, J.H. Langridge and Joseph White. Two naval wireless operators, Thomas Reed and William Stephen, from the New Zealand Division ship HMS Achilles, were transferred to join these airmen. Cyril Kay left New Zealand on the 16th of May 1939 to join the men already there. With the plan, he had become second in command of the unit and their navigation leader, planning the flight routes home to New Zealand for the bombers. As the plan went, upon arrival in New Zealand, the two new stations at Ohaki and Whanuapai were projected to have been completed. A number one squadron RNZAF would have formed at Ohakia with the first group of Wellingtons, while number two squadron RNZAF formed later at Fanuapai with the second 15 bombers. Their role would have been general reconnaissance, providing coastal defence and monitoring shipping lanes, and if the need came, they could be used as long-range transports or on the offensive as strategic bombers. At the time, as the two new Wellington squadrons were being formed, Number 3 Squadron RNZAF would have also formed at the new station of Woodburn. This unit would have flown second-hand Vickers Vincent reconnaissance bombers. All three of these squadrons would have been regular service units, with full-time airmen and ground crew. Meanwhile, by that time there would have been four other general reconnaissance squadrons active in New Zealand. The Auckland Territorial Squadron, with Vincent's at Hobsonville, the Wellington Territorial Squadron with Baffins at Rongatai, the Christchurch Territorial Squadron with Baffins at Wigram, and the Dunedin Territorial Squadron at Tyree, likely with Baffins or Vincent's. And these squadrons were planned to have detached flights at Napier, New Plymouth, possibly Hamilton, and elsewhere. Incidentally, at the time of the announcement of the purchase of the Wellingtons, the RNZAF consisted of 73 officers and 439 airmen in regular service, not counting the territorials. It was projected in Cochrane's plan that by 1940 the RNZAF would have 900 personnel, so the bomber program was effectively doubling the strength of the Royal New Zealand Air Force in two years. And, when one realises in 1935 the RNZAF only had 130 people on its staff. The expansion program was definitely a major step forward for the service. Cochrane's master plan for ensuring New Zealand had long-range and medium-range bombers to defend New Zealand against attack from the sea was exceptional forward thinking at the time. He did not consider fighters as a high priority as there was nowhere for enemy aircraft to fly from apart from aircraft carriers and his thoughts were the best defence against 
an aircraft carrier, was a heavy bomber. When it came to the plan to fly the Wellingtons to New Zealand, it was projected that the first six to eight Wellingtons would leave for New Zealand in August 1939, under squadron leader Morris Buckley's command. However, the ever-deepening political situation in Europe forced a rethink, with war clearly seeming imminent. So all those plans for those new squadrons to be based at Ahakia, Whanuapai and Woodburn never came to fruition, and neither did the Dunedin Territorial Squadron. War intervened, and the Wellingtons never came to New Zealand. In a unique move, they were handed to the Royal Air Force and formed an operational squadron which was soon at war. That squadron was soon renamed Number 75 New Zealand Squadron, Royal Air Force. In order to tell the story, we need to go back to the beginning of Number 75 Squadron. And so, I turn to my co-host, Glenn Turner. Glenn, tell me about the origins of Number 75 Squadron. Well, during World War One, 75 Squadron uh, Royal Flying Corps was first formed on the 1st of October 1916 at Goldingham in Bedfordshire. And it was described as Number 75 Home Defence Squadron, or HD in brackets. Um, and this was part of the new Home Defence Scheme. The squadron was equipped with biplanes uh, BE-2Cs and Ds and Es, and some later some Avro 504Ks. These aircraft were flying defensive patrols, uh, primarily to uh, protect the uh, northern part of England there against Zeppelins. And uh, the records we have shows that um, they, they sounds as though they never sighted any Zeppelins, they never had any excitement, and they certainly didn't shoot any down. Uh, the squadron moved from Goldingham to uh, Elmswell in Suffolk in September 1917 and they re-equipped with B-12s and B-12Bs. These biplane aircraft uh, were still pretty rudimentary, and, uh, but in 1918 they replaced their aircraft with Sopwith Camels. Uh, still though, they never intercepted Zeppelins, uh, let alone other, any other enemy aircraft. And by May 1919, they were moved to Northweald, and by the June of that uh, following month, they, the squadron disbanded entirely. Um, obviously, the war had finished, and no more need for uh, some of these fighter squadrons. During the, the workup of the Royal Air Force and forming training and uh, heavier bomber squadrons in the late 1930s, Number 75 Squadron was uh, reformed at RF Driffield on the 15th of March 1937. They were formed as a heavy bomber squadron equipped with four Vickers Virginia night bombers and seven Avro Ansons. These were general reconnaissance bomber light aircraft and trainers. By the August of 1937, the Virginias began to be retired to storage and more Ansons were added to the squadron's strength, making 13 in total. They'd also suffered quite a numerous amount of uh, accidents and crashes using the Vickers Virginia, <clears throat> so probably just as well they moved to an aircraft that was single-winged, low-wing monoplane type. In September 1937, the squadron then were re-equipping with the Handy Page Harrow. These were night bombers, massive aircraft, but still very unwieldy and still um, certainly of... of uh, lesser um, equipped and 
capable aircraft than the new aircraft coming on stream by any other country, including the, the Royal Air Force. The ensigns, therefore, were, were withdrawn the following month. The squadron had been based at various airfields over the next several months, moving from its home base at Driffield temporarily to Eckington uh, for annual arms camps, and then in July 1938, a permanent move to RAF Honington. By March 1939, the squadron's role had changed from heavy bomber unit to become a group pool squadron, taking aircrew from flying training schools and from the RAF Volunteer Reserve and training them up to operational standards before their posting onwards to operational squadrons. Effectively, this squadron became an operational training unit, or more easily known as an OTU. This was done on Vickers Wellington's aircraft and the Harrows, and from July 1939, they solely equipped with the Vickers Wellingtons. That same month, the squadron moved to RF Stratishall. With the outbreak of World War II, the squadron moved to RF Harwell with its seven Wellingtons and seven Ansons. The squadron continued in the role of an operational training unit and gained more Wellingtons to fill that role. The designation of the squadron was 75 bracket B bracket squadron or 75 bomber squadron. And to continue on with the training, all the squadrons were reorganized and 75 B squadron disbanded in late March 1940. And its unit number had, had been returned to the general pool of squadrons for reuse or standing up for other reasons. Um, meanwhile, the New Zealand squadron was flying their six Wellingtons and the New Zealand government had purchased 30 of these aircraft, but with the war that intervened, they decided to gift those aircraft to the Royal Air Force. Uh, there are um, some documents that actually mean that they actually sold them back to the Royal Air Force. Correct. But uh, it is noted that uh, they were gifted back as, as a means, but um, uh, there is uh, either way the aircraft then became Royal Air Force aircraft and no longer Royal New Zealand aircraft. They initially flew with uh, New Zealand markings, New Zealand numbers underneath the wings, and some photographs show these markings to be quite large and definitely had an NZ number. Now, do you realise that the serial numbers, NZ301 to 306, that have been applied, were double-ups with aircraft that they would have clashed with when they got back to New Zealand, because the Vincents were NZ301 onwards. And the interesting thing is that the Vincents, which in my introduction I mentioned, um, the Vincents were being brought on charge to form number three squadron. And the Wellingtons were number one squadron, number two squadron. So you would have had number one squadron with NZ301 through and number three squadron with NZ301 through. Well, one would have had to have hoped that they would have realised that, I suppose, in, in the UK it didn't matter much, but perhaps perhaps in, in everything uh, being, being shipped, all the information being shipped, perhaps someone allotted the aircraft differently without yeah. them knowing. Uh, but th those those were painted out pretty much uh, by early 1940 and, and uh, reissued with 
with new squat and codes. Which is exactly what would have happened if they'd got home as yeah. well. <laughs> <laughs> Just one of those little, you know, side lights there. Well, it would have been fascinating to actually see the Wellingtons here in New Zealand, but um, it wasn't to be. So, um, by uh, by early early March 1940, the New Zealand squadron, sometimes misnamed the New Zealand Flight, but the New Zealand squadron of six Wellingtons were crewed with the New Zealanders that had been sent to England to bring those aircraft uh, back to New Zealand in, in a long, long arduous flight and uh, of of up to five separate ferry flights of those 30 aircraft where they had to have been all built and, and uh, returned to New Zealand. So during the time of the New Zealand squadron, the aircraft flew quite a significant amount of, of sorties uh, both around England and across the channel. And they have uh, been shown to have dropped quite a number of uh, leaflet, called leaflet raids. And uh, I think they also did some nickel raids. Okay. under the auspices of the New Zealand Squadron. Uh, well, the, the, the New Zealand Squadron was used uh, for, for raids in, um, well, after the war started, uh, in later 1939, and uh, for some time uh, there, was, there was toing and froing from the New Zealand and the UK governments and the Royal Air Force and the Royal New Zealand Air Force as to what was to become of the airmen that were already there ready and training. They'd done a lot of flying and training on the first six aircraft that were already issued to them from the factory. And uh, they were stationed at several places, uh, RF Harrow and RF Marham. Marham was their main base in Norfolk. And uh, th they had been training uh, the, to fly the aircraft back to New Zealand. But of course, with war looming, then the thoughts were that they would stay. And they did stay and they continued to do uh, both training flights and then were included in battle orders to do raids across the channel. Uh, some of those raids were mainly leaflet dropping, but other raids consisted of joining up with number 37 squadron from the same airfield and they were included in the same battle orders and they were either tasked with uh, light bombing operations or uh, mine laying and uh, there were no losses at, at the, by the year's end. Uh, come 1940, they were still wondering how they were going to uh, affect uh, the, the integration of these aircraft, and they'd been loosely, colloquially known as the New Zealand Squadron, and uh, that, that is typed in most of the order of battles uh, of, of the that particular unit and also on the base unit, Arif Maram's um, base records as well, which proves that same thing. Now, now at this time when the squadron, once the war had begun and they're doing ops, did the personnel get larger? Did, they, did the RAF start sending them lots of ground crew? And is this known? Um, and it's a good point you raised, David, that there were ops, because many people use the word missions. And unfortunately, um, missions is used uh, for, for many of the, the, what these guys did, but all their logbooks, you look at all the whiteboards or the chalkboards that they had and everything was ops or operations. 
and uh, many of those the, the the chaps have told me over the years have corrected me. I used to say missions, and I got uh, pretty quickly told what what about, and uh, said no, we never did missions, we did ops. Uh, unfortunately, some other chaps of the same era prove prove wrong and and uh, shoot us down, and they say missions themselves. So. I guess uh, if we just use the word ops, operations, or sorties, we're good. Yeah. All raids. All, all raids, exactly. Well, they were on a raid. They did a raid too. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So w with with the New Zealand squadron uh, operating their six aircraft, th there was a combination of, of air crew um, that were New Zealanders that were already in England. There were those that were already flying for the Royal Air Force, which were, were seconded over, across. There were those that were shipped out to there, and of course they had been flying uh, Vickers Vildebeest back home, so they really did need to, to work their way up on, on the new aircraft for the Wellington. So uh, they they included those extra personnel, and the, there were some ground crew, but the majority was uh, included, uh, were including Royal Air Force guys coming on board as well. So by uh, by the beginning of 1940, uh, the, the squadron, the, the New Zealand squadron, um, was uh, supplying operational aircraft to um, to the the mix, and uh, they finally decided that instead of separating the crews and the aircraft and dispersing them into the general Royal Air Force, either training groups, because let's face it, they were using the Wellingtons for both training and operations at that time. Uh, or uh, um, them for forming their own separate unit, <coughs> that they'd be given a uh, RAF squadron number and they'd keep the NZ designation. Uh, it could have been any number, but in this instance, it was the number 75 squadron Royal Air Force number plate that they were issued with. And on the 4th of April 1940, the New Zealand squadron was renamed number 75 bracket NZ bracket. Squadron Royal Air Force. Many believe that it was a Royal New Zealand Air Force squadron, but it was not. It was a Royal Air Force squadron with Royal Air Force aircraft. It was born out of the New Zealand squadron and those aircraft that were going to go to New Zealand, but by then they'd been given or sold back to the, the Royal Air Force. So the nucleus was formed out of those, those six crews that were already there and the ground staff that were already training. And uh, they, they continued, they, uh, they, they gained strength and uh, they, they became a complete squadron of up to 24 aircraft. And they uh, relocated to RF Feltwell as their main base. And they flew from there for several years uh, and uh, horror stories of um, a lot of crews being lost. M many of the aircraft were crewed solely with New Zealanders. In the Vickers Wellington, they had five crew members. So uh, whenever they lost an aircraft, that was five Kiwis going down all at once. Right. And uh, at that particular time, they hadn't ramped up the squadron, the, the personnel training. Therefore, that uh, was it was a pretty huge loss to um, uh, to work out. So uh, somewhere along uh, that that chapter of lines, they they got together and decided that they would include other nationalities to mix the crews up and uh, the, they mixed them mainly with English to start with 
but as the war progressed, uh, w w even with the other aircraft types, of course, they included the Canadians uh, and Australians majority-wise. Right. Uh, later on, we also had um, some Indian um, airmen as well joined during the unit, and one particular um, chap by the name of Singh was lost. Um, and later in the Sterling. So, so it, it did become a bit of a multi-commonwealth unit, but predominantly New Zealanders. And those New Zealanders were being supplied through the um, uh, Commonwealth Air Training Plan, or, or the Empire Air Training Scheme, as it was also known. Th that happened a little bit later, that's correct. They, they created that uh, training scheme that allowed uh, the Australians, the Canadians, and the New, Ze New Zealanders to be trained in, in, in very bitter cold conditions in separate airfields right across Canada. Um, but that, uh, in, in this instance of um, 1940, it, was, it hadn't been um, made up as of then. Right. So with the, with the Wellingtons, and the, uh, the, they then started amassing a good record, and they were pumping out um, full units of aircraft for, for each individual raid that was required. Of course, the bad weather took a big toll as well on operational uh, availability, amount of aircraft, and even takeoffs for for a raid, and they were turned back because the weather was just so harsh. So, uh, not only did they have to um, contend with uh, the conditions uh, as well as the enemy enemy night fighters and um, and anti-aircraft fire. Tell me about the, the actual, the Wellington suitability for the, the role that uh, had been given them. But was it a good aircraft for the, for the various roles that they were undertaking? If, if you're going to discuss the suitability of that one particular aircraft, you have to stand it alongside the aircraft that were already in service and what were being planned. Already in service and, and long past the use-by date was the Hayford. Uh, was the Hampton yeah. and uh, several other types that really didn't have the bomb load and certainly didn't have the protection and didn't have the speed. The Whitley was another. And the Whitley. Um, gosh, they were still using that in 1939. And um, uh, and the Blenheim, of course, too. The Bristol Blenheim was another light fo light bomber that they uh, they tried to use. And uh, the, the, it just got shot out of the sky, pretty much, which was heavy losses for the early early days. The Wellington was certainly a, a big step up, and it, it first flew, I think, 35, 36? 36, yeah. Yep, so uh, it, 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 too, was, was not a brand new aircraft, but the gestation and the prototype and also meeting ministry standards, and, and we still have to remember that even in World War Two, they still had the commanders from World War One looking after the units, both Army, Navy and Air Force, and they still had their minds back in World War One. So to try and um, introduce a new monoplane and a new construction and new engines mean, mean that, that the uh, producers and the designers and the manufacturers not only had to um, contend with the, the, the newness of their designs, they had to contend with the ministry and trying to convince them that what they were producing was good. Uh, Mitchell with the Spitfire was a prime example, I guess. But um, and of course they, they had to contend with engine manufacturers, and all the fighter command wanted their engines. Bomber command wanted wanted the same engines, and of course um, that those aircraft suffered. The Wellington itself um, had a relatively good bomb load. I suppose you could compare it to the likes of the Junkers 88, 
uh, and the German uh, side of things and, and the bombs that they they could carry their distance uh, they, they certainly um, pushed them to the limits to get to to their target and back uh, later the Lancasters did over eight hours I think nearly nine hours was their endurance that's a heck of a long time to be traveling above 14 or 15,000 feet uh, minus 40 degrees it's so so really the Royal Air Force had little option it was their their heavy bomber of that time until the Stirling and the Halifax and the Lancaster come along um, the only other option was the Manchester and the Manchester got shot down uh, because of its engine and um, uh, th th that was its main main fall so really the Wellington was the best of the two engine aircraft that they had and uh, I suppose one could suggest that the fact that New Zealand had chosen 30 of those in 1938 uh, meant that um, that they'd chosen, one could suggest wisely, I suppose. Well, actually, it's interesting that the the point where the um, contract was signed was five months before they actually entered squadron service with the RAF. They hadn't even gone into squadron service. Did you realise it? I had not heard that. That's that's pretty awesome. They only, mm. you know, the first it first flew in 1936, but it didn't enter service with Number Nine Squadron which was the first squadron to operate mm. in Wellington until October 1938. So it's less than a year before the war. So you said they were an old aircraft, but they weren't really an old aircraft. Those Vickers gentlemen must have been great salesmen. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, yeah, of course, uh, and they had already um, proven themselves by selling the New Zealand government the Wildebeest, <laughs> which was, you know, fantastic for New Zealand compared to what they'd had before. They probably went so, back to them specifically for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. classic. So, <laughs> Well, uh, the, the the Wellington in itself, uh, it it um, was only armed with uh, two pairs of guns, front and back, uh, nose and tail. So uh, it, it certainly was was under armed in that instance because later on, when the, the other four engine bombers had the mid upper turret, at least they had a, a bit more all all round, except for directly underneath, uh, vision clearance and uh, ability to attempt to repel attacks uh, but most of the air gunners I've spoken with um, and one in particular uh, uh, just yesterday talking with uh, a chap named John Swales he was a rear gunner in a Lancaster but he said the turrets were a little different other than they had four guns versus two he also flew in Wellingtons <clears throat> and I, I think there's been a, a recent discussion around about um, gun bloom and about being blinded by night vision by from the gunners. Well, the, sitting in a tail gun uh, turret, facing backwards, seeing what everything else has been gone before, but from behind, they were the eyes and the ears of the pilot. The pilot had no sense of what was directly behind him. They totally relied on the tail gunner yelling corkscrew left or corkscrew right or um, uh, enemy attacking or uh, whatever their call could have been. But um, I specifically asked uh, this tail gunner about uh, being blinded by uh, the firing of the machine guns. Bearing in mind most of their, their um, ammunition mix was four to one. Four balls to one incendiary or trace around, bigger part, trace around. So he could follow and stitch to his target using the um, the tracer but uh, as such the, each turret had their own uh, gun sight so he was crouched in that turret 
looking down through his gun sight, concentrating down through the line of the gun sight to where he was trying to aim for. And bearing in mind, these, these guys went through uh, excruciating amount of training as to shadow targets or shadows of aircraft. And, and identification was most important for these guys. And they had to ensure their target was correct. Now, we know a friendly fire. We know that there's quite likely that some aircraft were shot at, shot up or shot down by friendly, other friendly aircraft in the air, let alone anti-aircraft and the like. So uh, John was, was pretty sure to say that concentrating down the gun sight, as soon as the, the, he, un, he pulled the trigger and unleashed hell, his concentration was watching those rounds heading towards what he thought was the target. As for gun bloom, or, or um, blooming uh, night vision because of the bright lights, he didn't think about it. Right. So uh, I know that question was asked uh, not that long ago, both on Facebook and, and uh, your site, Dave. So, so uh, people were asking what the question was. Well, there's, there's the answer from one particular gunner who never shot down anybody because really guns on target on in most of those aircraft, it sounds as though you were very lucky to have actually got any shots away, let alone seen an enemy, right. especially doing night patrols or night night flying or night sorties because it was pitch dark. And these guys didn't fly in formation. Now, many see the B-17s later on in World War II showing perfect formations of B-17s. Well, the Americans had to do that because they were flying during the day and they assumed themselves were invincible. They had the box formation to protect them with their guns, whereas the British flew at night and they didn't fly in formation because they couldn't see each other. There was no way they could. So they flew safely, what they hoped and thought, was, was away from other aircraft. Apparently, John said that later on in the war, the British then joined some of the Americans in some of the daylight raids and they were crap at bloody formation flying because they hadn't done mass formations of aircraft together. Right, right. So the Wellingtons would have been no different. They'd have been flying separately. They would have got to the target uh, in, in, a, in a group of aircraft. Um, their, their bomb aimer would have taken them to, to the target. Uh, he would have had control of the aircraft up to then. They'd had to have a steady line before dropping uh, their cookies, the, the crews called them cookies, or okay, they were bombs or incendiaries. And um, he, he would then say, um, bombs gone. Some say they said bombs away. Uh, cookies gone. Uh, what, whatever suited the bomb aimer to tell the crew that um, the load had gone, uh, bomb doors to close, and then get out of there. They were very subject to uh, friendly bombs dropping. And there is some pretty famous uh, footage of a B-24 having a bomb chopped through the wing route from one of his fellow bombers from above. And, uh, and of course, instantly the wing collapsed, clapped, and, and the bomb was streaming down. So, so the, the, the crews were very conscious of uh, what was around them. And uh, this chap John, again, remembers looking up through the perspex of his rear turret and seeing a B-17 with his bomb doors open directly above them. And all he could do was yell out, Skipper, get the hell out of here. So uh, close calls must have been had by a lot, and there must have been some enemy uh, attacks as well as friendly, friendly fire, whether it be shooting or bomb dropping on them. So the, the Wellingtons, uh, the, the, a lot of the crew had um, electrically warmed suits, both their boots and, and their flying kit, 
and allowed them to actually sustain uh, the, the very, very cold, cold um, temperatures at, at the heights they managed to get to. Um, over 14,000 feet is always deemed to be the, the, the limit of what the human body can uh, breathe or needs the oxygen from. So uh, anything above that, the guys needed to have oxygen on them all the time. Uh, otherwise, they would suffer dizziness, they wouldn't be at their best, they'd feel the cold any more than they would normally do. Some of the other things the pilots and the crew suffered from, besides the intense cold, was the noise. And uh, m many of the, the veterans we, we talk with now have got tinnitus, they've got deafness, they, um, they have suffered all these years with the ringing of the motors that were only barely uh, five to ten feet from them and uh, sitting in that environment with their cloth caps on with their, their very rudimentary um, uh, headphones meant that they were certainly susceptible to some some uh, awful high decibel noises from the motors and the propellers whipping around not far from them. So uh, the besides of course they also had to endure anti-aircraft fire um, uh, night fighter, uh, cannon shell or um, machine gun fire and uh, some of these aircraft, uh, the earlier ones in, in coming back to the Wellington, were cloth covered. So the Germans had uh, same kind of mixtures as what the British had but they had a good mixture of incendiary, of high explosives, incendiary, high explosive rounds, uh, normal ball rounds but having an incendiary uh, bunch of shells hitting a a fabric aircraft, uh, or, and, and there's such a wooden aircraft like the Wellington was, meant that they uh, were most very likely uh, quickly and easily to catch fire. And um, I, I guess many of the Germans relied on that for some of these early aircraft. Um, uh. So with 75 NZ Squadron Royal Air Force flying out of RF Feltwell, uh, they uh, had lost quite a few crew and in Feltwell they had quite a few characters. And later on um, they also had uh, several crewmen who defied um, the normal sense of duty and one in particular, Sergeant James Allen Ward, uh, did, did an action that was thought to be so courageous and so beyond his his sense of duty and his abilities that uh, he was awarded the Victoria Cross for his actions. And uh, the, uh, the actual particular story of the way the Ward did that has been pretty much in a lot of conjecture over the years. Uh, a lot of rumour, a lot of um, uh, hearsay uh, and, and no doubt being introduced by squadron members, other people changing the story, his family and uh, with the um, introduction of, of uh, a biography of James Ward very soon, uh, that should hopefully dispel all of those errors, rumours, lies, mixtures, and then prove to show um, this, this very humble man uh, chose to uh, do a, 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 to try and save his, his aircraft. So the, the, the pretty much the story behind James Ward's uh, actions that night was that he uh, uh, was was a, a second pilot to a Canadian chap uh, by the name of squadron leader Wooderson. So uh, in, in the earlier years of uh, of the war, and uh, in this case a year or two after the formation of 75 NZ Squadron, the normal was to have a second pilot. 
and uh, Ward's particular logbook shows that he did at least nine trips as a second pilot before he got his own crew. Right. Uh, this was found to be quite expensive because um, of those aircraft that were shot down, uh, the normal crew quantity of a Vickers Wellington was, was five. Uh, front gunner and, and bomb aimer, rear gunner, pilot, a navigator, and a wireless operator. So effectively, James Ward was number six of this particular aircraft this night, and on returning from uh, the, the raid they had successfully dropped their bombs on, uh, over the Zuta Z he was attacked by a two-engined uh, German night fighter, and it set the right-hand wing ablaze. Uh, it punctured one of the fuel pipes, and this is where the flames are coming from, and they uh, pretty much were sure that if the fire uh, managed to catch a hold, they would have to bail or they would crash. Ward took it upon himself, uh, and others suggested that Woodison ordered him to go out there, but that's not correct. He took it upon himself with the help of his uh, one of his colleagues to tie a rope around his waist and crawl out from the Astrodome onto the wing. Now, with the Wellington being made of fabric, it was easy for Ward to kick his way through the fabric and hold on to the geodic construction. If it was a later model aircraft with full aluminium skin, very difficult to do, although it was done. So, uh, in this case, Ward managed that uh, superficial feat and, and the fact that Woodison was uh, still struggling to try and maintain the aircraft, um, still 150 knots of wind across that wing uh, meant that Ward uh, managed to get across there. He had a, a somewhat of a tarpaulin uh, that was not normally in the aircraft but was there. Uh, he grabbed it, he managed to snuff the flames out, but as, as soon as that happened the, uh, the wind took the tarpaulin. Interestingly enough, they'd also tried to extinguish the flames from within the aircraft. Now, how they could do that at least 10 feet away from a window of the aircraft, and they used the coffee out of their, one of their guys' flasks, and one guy, well, <laughs> they, even, they even used one of the ur urinal buckets. Um, and, and apparently, uh, as soon as they, they tried to throw it out into the windstream, uh, apparently uh, the rear gunner copped a bunch of it, so um, that uh, obviously didn't work and hence, and hence uh, well, it wasn't funny at the time I'm sure, hence Ward managed to do his wing walking act. So his, his uh, heroism of that night was to, to effectively snuff out the flames that could have reached uh, the rest of the wing's fabric and therefore uh, set the, the rest of the aircraft on fire. By the time he got back into the aircraft, he was completely spent, and uh, uh, apparently he just laid in the laid in the aircraft, um, t totally exhausted. It was apparently only then that Woodison learned of what he did. Wow. Uh, again, conjecture states that Woodison slowed the aircraft to ensure that he was okay, and they ordered him out there. Now, this new biography will will actually shed light on on and, and uh, dispel any of those rumours or, or myths and uh, one state states that Woodison only learnt of uh, Ward's walking act after um, he, he got back in. Wow. Now Squadron Leader Woodison is an interesting chap on his own that he was a, um, 
a very keen uh, flyer fr uh, in Canada before the war, very experienced flyer. And he came onto the squadron and uh, had uh, quite a few sorties under his belt already. And uh, I put it that it wasn't just Ward's action to put the flames out that stopped the rest of the aircraft firing up. It was it could not have got back without Widdison at the controls. Yep. He was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross for that particular action uh, at the same time as Ward was the Victoria Cross. So um, uh, w without his particular action as well, they managed to get the crew and the aircraft back. Yep. So um, my, now. Um, In this instance, uh, James Allen Ward was was very much a, um, a humble young man, and uh, it was uh, his squadron commander that um, put forward for the award of the Victoria Cross to, to James Ward. So, um, and and one other thing that um, is needs to be quite distinctly mentioned that these awards for bravery and gallantry are awarded. Some are instant. Some have to be collated and put forward. Ultimately, though, they go through the chain of command from the OC to the CO to the AOC to the Prime Minister to the King. The King has to approve these, and therefore he awards that award. The DFC, the Military Cross, the Victoria Cross, they are all uh, medals for gallantry, Distinguished Flying Medal, the DFM for CNCOs, DFC for officers. And uh, unfortunately, many people say that these guys won these medals. Wrong terminology. They are awarded. Some could say they're earned, but there again, there are medals for gallantry. Uh, I, I think of this to say uh, these guys don't go out there or did not go out there night after night and say, I'm going to win me a Victoria Cross. These guys went out there and did what they were trained to do, what they knew had to be done because of the Nazi tyranny and what it, was, what it meant to them overall. And there was a system where awards uh, were uh, handed out <laughs> to uh, chaps that had their COs recognise their actions of gallantry or bravery. Now, many... Many airmen went without the the notification or or the acknowledgement that they did an act. Um, there later was an airman called Manaski that did a very similar thing to what Ward did, but in a Lancaster. Uh, he actually had his parachute on and was blown off the wing. So he he later was awarded the, the Victoria Cross posthumously. So uh, the likes of Ward and the many airmen on 75 that were uh, awarded the Dis Distinguished Flying Cross, the the um, Distinguished Flying Medal, the um, Gallantry Medal, uh, they were awarded these things. These guys never won them whatsoever. Yeah. It wasn't a race. Yeah, it wasn't, a, wasn't the Olympics, it wasn't a competition. No, no definitely not. Yeah. And I despair when I see newspaper articles or magazine articles talk about this, and I despair even more greater when there are even military books that state the same thing. Yes. Yeah. They should get the terminology right for us. Just um, briefly, can you tell me about the squadron's role in the Battle of France? Well, for the Battle of France, um, and, and, and consequently Dunkirk, um, they, the Germans knew that they had the, uh, uh, both the French, Belgian and British forces on the flee, and uh, that they closed around Dunkirk and uh, 
the the uh, forces on the beachhead needed support from uh, from the air, and uh, I suppose that's probably one of the first operations of close air support that uh, um, any of the armies received. But in this case, they were trying to escape, and uh, they managed to um, target some of those advancing German German columns and. Uh, uh, 250 500-pound bombs, bomb loads normally, uh, and then managed to drop those on on the um, and uh, as they would have been involved with other Royal Air Force squadrons to uh, try and halt the advance of the German German forces. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Glenn, for your insight into the squadron during the time of the Wellington bombers. It's time now to hear from a couple of men who were actually on the squadron at the time. Our first guest is Jack Wakefield, who was a rear gunner. I'm John Wakefield, flying officer, 40929, Harrens ZAF, known as Jack, although my real Christian name is John. And I went into um, Levin on April the 8th, 1940. We did learn King's regulations, marching, uh, elementary um, Morse code, etc. Uh, we went up to Ohakia. We flew in the old Vickers Vincent. The pilots, of course, wanted to get away to the war, so they just flew those, uh, chucked those things around all over the sky, made quite a few guys sick. We were held in by a, a monkey strap, so we didn't fall out, and there were three cockpits, pilot and the navigator, gunner. Now, the gunner and the navigator, which in our case was two gunners, because we were only going up to do air firing, we could crawl through a tunnel between the two rear cockpits. After about eight weeks, only eight weeks in uniform, we were on our way to England. Anyway, we went um, on the Rangitata to England, but on the way, across the Atlantic especially, we had a, an English Marine who um, trained us to use this anti-aircraft gun, and we got very, very good. And um, approaching England around between, you know, through, through the Orkney Islands, really. We were as close as coming up the Marlborough Sounds. What's, that air, what's those three aircraft up there? Looked like Spitfires. Well, we didn't know what they were because they were very high. What's those silver things they're dropping? They were Heinkel 111s at a great height. They were so high we couldn't see they were twin-engined even but it was the sun on the aircraft and the sun on the bombs as they let them go. Anyway, the bombs rained down, but they didn't hit anything, but they went off with a hell of a crack when they hit the water. See, we had no experience in this kind of thing. And uh, it was only a short time after that um, a Dornier 217 went straight down the middle of the convoy. Now, we couldn't fire at him because he was so low the masts of the other ships were coming up in our sight. We were all loaded, of course, and uh, I got one shell away. And when the shell went off, he was the other side of it. But unless you got a direct hit, or he was close when the shell exploded because I was on a time fuse, you'd never bring him down. So I don't know whether he was 50 yards the other side of my burst or 200 yards the other side. But anyway, it was a good shot as far as line went. So anyway, they took us off at a place called Methyl in the Firth of Forth. And the reason for that was that there was 50 
trained, well, semi-trained aircrew, which they didn't want to lose because every ship that went down the channel to London was attacked. You could more or less bet on it. Now, the Rangatata was full of meat, wool, cheese and butter and all that kind of thing, so it was a pretty valuable cargo, but they didn't want to risk losing us as well. So they put us off at Methyl. Well, we had to hang around there because they had to put a special train on for us. And right to the side of the uh, station was a girls' orphanage. They were only, only kids, but we had a, a lot of time giving them cheek and vice versa. They are all hanging out the window and everything. So we get down to London and we go to a place called Uxbridge. It's a big personnel base there, several storeys uh, high, brick. It's still, I believe it's still in operation. We spent about two weeks at Uxbridge and the drill was you waited uh, till say 10 o'clock when the postings went up for the day. If you went on the posting list you were free to go into London. Well I teamed up with the navigator and uh, we kind of went into London every day. Sometimes we went back to barracks at night, sometimes we didn't. But we were, <laughs> we were pretty penniless. And I remember one night we stopped in one of the, um, well, one of the poshest hotels in, in London and we got a bed there for 10 shillings. <laughs> it probably cost you <laughs> a thousand bucks today. But it was practically empty and it was probably be commandeered within a short time. Anyway, uh, I was posted with uh, some, of, some of the chaps on my course. One was my best mate. And we went on to um, a training school at Aston Downs, near Gloucester, up on the Cotswolds. And we were trained on Defiance. Defiance are a two-seater fighter with a thousand horsepower Merlin engine, the same as the original Spitfires. And we were trained on them. And um, they were great for us, but in actual fact, if we were in combat, we would never have got out. You had to get out through the floor. Uh, one of the things I do remember on that unit was I was up one day with a young pilot officer, and he said, I'm going to put it down, put it straight down in a dive gunner. Hang on. So down we went, probably three to four hundred miles an hour, I suppose. And uh, he called me up and he said, are you all right, Gunner? I said, well, I am now, but I, I blacked out. He said, oh, don't worry, I blacked out too. <laughs> Another thing, of course, you had to do was to fly under the Clifton Bridge. And when you go under the Clifton Bridge, you're more or less in a canyon, because the bridge is across. And you have to get out pretty smartly at the other end. I also went up as a volunteer gunner in Blenheims just to get our hours up. We only left here for seven hours. And uh, the bloke, <laughs> the pilot in the Blenheim, he had to go through like that to give him enough clearance on the wings. So anyway, um, we went on leave pending posting. And I got a telegram to um, report to Aria Feltwell. Well, as we approached, we could see Wellingtons. We weren't too sure what they were either. And when we got through the guard guard gate, we says to the airman there, is there any defiance here? And they says, oh no, no defiance, all Wellingtons. 
well, we were disappointed because we were gung-ho fighter boys, you know. So anyway, uh, turned out it was a New Zealand squadron, so we felt a, a lot better. And when we got there, the gunner leader took us out handy. They had a chassis with a Ford 10 engine mounted on it for the hydraulics, and there was a gun turret there. He said, play around with that. He, <laughs> and within a few nights, we were on our way over Germany. So when was it that you arrived there then? Uh, was it still 1940 or...? Yes, it was. Um, I started um, flying with 75 on um, early November. So when you were on the Defiance, it had actually still been the Battle of Britain, I guess, then, was it? Uh, right mm. at the end. But the Defiance, which I should have mentioned, were at the beginning, they were knocking the Messmiths down because the Messmiths were coming in behind and they were met with a four-gun Fraser Nash turret, and each gun fired at the rate of 1,200 rounds a minute. Now, you couldn't fire for a minute because you couldn't carry the weight, but that was the rate of fire, so you had 4,800 rounds a minute. And uh, you fired two-second bursts, of course, to conserve your ammunition. But anyway, once the Messerschmitts learned that the Defiant had no forward armament, they, they knocked the... Um, Defiance out of the war, as far as frontline fighters went, they were really hammered. But I wouldn't be talking to you ten to one if I'd been, say, a few weeks earlier. That's how bad it was. Anyway, on uh, 75 Squadron with Wellingtons, um, they were a bomber. On 75 Squadron, I did 30 trips with them. Uh, my original crew. Um, the New it was a New Zealand pilot, and um, I think there was a New Zealand second pilot. And uh, after a few trips, they volunteered to go out to the Middle East. And in the meantime, I'd met my future wife, so I didn't want to go to the Middle East. So I went to uh, the wing commander and asked him if I could stay in England. And of course, I wasn't dodging anything because it was certainly hairier across Germany than it was in the Middle East. Anyway, my, my best mate, he said, by gee, I'd go. And so I said, well, I'll, get, I'll mention the wing commander. He said, well, if you can get a replacement to Wakefield, he said, um, that'll be all right. So my mate, best mate took my place and went out there and was killed out there. I don't think he was in the same crew, though, because the New Zealand pilot, Charlie Pownall, he's not in the casualty list. So I imagine that Jack changed crews somewhere, which quite often happened. You, um, perhaps his, the, his skipper had done more trips, you see, before Jack actually joined the crew, because we were fairly new chums. What was Jack's last name? Jack, Jack Milner from Hamilton. Okay. And he'd spent most of his life in the island, so he hated the ice and snow that we were getting at the time. The winter of 40-41 was one of the worst that ever had in England for ice and snow. It suited us in the sense that the Germans were all, your fighter, fighter boys were snowed in as well. So we could get across there, but we did fly through shocking weather. And we had a lot of experiences, of course. Um, we got lost once. Um, the wind changed. Uh, the navigator couldn't get a shot on the stars because we had cloud above us. And um, our wireless 
act up, in other words, our beacon, which gave us a reciprocal course, uh, that cut out. And um, when daylight came, we were over land on a coast. So I thought, oh, wacko, breakfast is nearly ready. So I unload, let me belts go, unloaded. And the next minute, woof, we were only a thousand feet. We were, we were still over France. Not a, a blue sky, just a few wispy clouds, not a mess of spit or anything about. So um, we, had, I had, we had an excellent navigator and he gave us a course for home and the pilot went up into what wispy cloud we had. But where the, where the Jerry Air Force was, I'll never know. The, every, everything went hairy, you see, like we were given our, the weather, our course, and um, the only thing that I have thought about, I wonder why the navigator during that time didn't ask me for a drift. Because the rear gunners could take a drift, you see, on flame float on the sea if you wanted to drop one. Any light that showed, we put our sights on the light. And we had a scale, green and red, port and starboard. And we'd take three drifts with our gun sight and give the navigator the average. But during that time, he never asked me for a sight and uh, for a drift. And when the wind changed the course, we're heading back on the wind that was given when we left base. And um, as I say, he couldn't check with the, with the uh, stars, with the sextant. They used to navigate with, you know, check by sextants in those days. And uh, our radio crapped out, so we were in big trouble, all right. But anyway, landed back at uh, Marham, I think it was, and um, uh, the engine started to cut on taxiing back. <laughs> so, from a, from my point of view as a rear gunner, although I never shot anything down and I never fired my guns in anger, there was a hell of a lot of hairy stuff that had to worry about besides that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Another night, um, I had some tracer coming straight for me, so I told the pilot to dive to the dark side of the sky. When you looked at, down at night, quite often it would be a full moon. One side you could see practically everything, and the other side you could see nothing. So that's the side you dived um, to get away from a fighter because he's blind looking down unless he can, he's very close. Anyway, we got away all right and um, we had 42 bullet holes in the aircraft and nothing touched. None of us touched. Another night we came back. The Wellington had geodetic construction, which is like a honeycomb, the frame. Very, very strong. The leading edge of the wing is metal, of course, but the back is fabric and all the fuselage is fabric. Well, one night we came back, we didn't feel anything apart from the usual flak which could shake you, you know, really violent. You just see red hot metal kind of going everywhere and black puffs of smoke. A shell must have gone straight through the wing, never touched the frame. Might have been a dud, of course, a total dud, but also it might have gone off if it hit the frame. And we didn't know till the next day till we had a look. The, <laughs> the ground crew were never thrilled, very thrilled when you came back with an aircraft full of holes because they had to patch it. I went, I went to Hamburg, Bremen, Berlin, Dusseldorf, 
Gilson Kirken, and quite a few other targets, which I can't remember off the cuff. But when we went to briefing, the big map of Europe generally had a sheet over it for security purposes. But under that would be the red tape of our course and our target. And uh, all the crew would be, crews would be sitting there. And when they unveiled this, when it was Hamburg, it was any time I ever heard, oh God. <laughs> it was a real hot place. We flew across the, <coughs> excuse me, North Atlantic, and then we picked up the mouth of the Elbe, which we used more or less as navigation. We could follow it, with, especially if there's a moon. And we followed it right up to Hamburg. And the reason it was a hot place was anti-aircraft fire, searchlights, and fighters. And um, the, apart from the, the heavy anti-aircraft fire, um, which really buffered you, and you come back a few holes in you. I remember one debriefing, the intelligence officer asked this navigator, what was it like? He said, it was bloody hot tonight. He said, they flew the bloody trams and everything up at us. And that, that, that was an excellent description. But anyway, um, generally, that's, later on, there was master searchlights and everything. Once they got you, you were held. More or less in my time, there'd be groups of three, and they'd pass you from one to the other. Now, they only had to move the searchlight, of course, a fraction, so they could keep up with you. And they'd pass you, if they could, from one to the other as you went down the hill. And uh, sometimes you'd see another Wellington caught in a searchlight, and it just looked like a moth, and he would be twisting and turning and throw that aircraft round every way, which way he could. But he didn't always get out. But one night we were held, and when you were held with a searchlight, you couldn't see anything. The light was so violent, you couldn't even hardly open your eyes. I generally used to have a <laughs> bad habit of taking half a brick with words on it that told Hitler what what he could do. And I dropped this half brick out, and the searchlights just cut. Now whether they heard the squeal is a brick, half a brick, which is square more or less, uh, dropped from 12,000 feet, I don't know, or whether it's just coincidence. But I like to think that they went out because my brick was screaming down. Oh yes, these targets. Yes, Hamburg was the worst. As the war went on, of course, they developed these uh, searchlight belts from the south of Germany, more or less, to the north, especially if you're going to the Ruhr. The Ruhr was always known as Happy Valley. You'd be very lucky if you did a trip to the Ruhr without getting flack up your backside at some stage. And of course, um, the uh, navigator would be laying on his stomach in the bomb bay, and he'd be giving the pilot directions, you know, left, left, steady, hold it. What I hated with Charlie Pownall, if it wasn't perfect, they went round two or three times, I prefer to go go across the target once, but um, probably as the war went on, they wouldn't even be allowed to do that because the uh, chances of uh, collision with other aircraft. You see, in the 1940s, we made our own way. There was no um, 
particular time to, to get there, but it was better if you got there together because um, the flak was more dispersed. But later on with the thousand bomber raids, you think of a thousand bombers or a thousand aircraft over in 20 minutes, yeah, they had to kind of be bang on with their time and their courses and everything. And they just get one chance in and and uh, and out. But uh, we were kind of wandering all over Germany on our own, so sometimes we got a lot of attention, sometimes we got none. none. One of the other things that's just come to my mind, one night we were going to um, northern Germany, and it was this terrific display of the Aurora Borealis, the northern lights. I've never seen anything so amazing in all my life. See, we're fairly north, we were high up. When I say high up, we generally only more or less um, did everything at 12,000 feet. But these, these northern lights were just like curtains of light from a bright kind of pink, blues, greens and everything. Absolutely amazing. And these patterns would dance all over the sky. As far as I know, I think it's ref reflection off the ice cap. That's what actually causes the the phenomenon. Mar marvelous. In my time, we were after um, because our force was fairly weak. We were after uh, marshalling yards, um, fuel dumps, uh, aircraft factories. We weren't after people at all. Personally, I have no. Um, how can I put it? No conscience about bombing. You knew there'd be women and children down there, but war was war, and they started it. But later on, it was really to knock them out of the war. And although I still feel sorry for the population, um, those fire bombs were terrible. Uh, they'd go into the shelters. The actual exit doors, which were steel, would glow red hot. Now, if anybody was caught in those fire storms, uh, they could be running right down the road and they just melt into a blob. So when you think of that, it's, it's terrible, but I think that was only found by accident. I think, I just forget the target now, but evidently the air was fairly warm and the, uh, we got, we stoked the fires and got them going and the hot air rose, cold air rushed in to replace it and it acted like a blast furnace. But I think that Bomber Harris really uh, knew what what they were doing, and I, I, I won't condemn him because war's war, and it, it cost uh, 50 million lives. Um, so I suppose it's justified in finishing in any way you can. Some of the figures that I quote occasionally when I talk to people: the RAF lost 50,000. So if you think of 50,000 young men, Americans lost the same. The Americans, of course, didn't get in until 42, but they still lost the same amount. Uh, I think they lost 55,000. We paid a big price. And um, the, the merchant seamen, 3,000 ships in the uh, Atlantic alone. So um, I can't really understand Hitler starting what he did, except of course that the Versailles Treaty was rather brutal and uh, the Germans couldn't export steel or anything like that and I think they were in a pretty bad way till he gave them hope. But they, 
It was only, I think, 19 years after the First World, first world War that the second one started. And they paid, they paid dearly for it too. So let's hope there's nothing like that again. You, you, don't, you don't actually win a war, you just survive it to a certain extent. Uh, in England, of course, the rationing was very, very tough. Two ounces of fat per week, two ounces of sugar per head. They were very healthy. We had the same ration, of course, there's no special ration for, for the services. I only know that when I went home on leave with a ration book and the butcher gave me a nod and a wink and a couple of extra chops, I was more or less a hero in the family, I know that. Popeye Lucas was a flight commander. There was these uh, black footprints that went up the wall and across the ceiling and down the other wall. And um, he was responsible for that. He did it in the officer's mess too. One of the other funny things that I only thought about, there was a fr uh, Frank Chun from Wellington. He was one of the gunners on the squadron, but he was a new gunner in my group. I remember there was um, Chun, Cutfield and Coleman and uh, one of Frank's party pieces was over the billiard table we had these low lamps hanging down and if he missed a, a pocket he used to pocket the bulb so we ran out of bulbs that was his <laughs> Frank's party piece um, I remember one night we were ready to, t to uh, go out to the aircraft and Junkers 88 went straight down the line of the hangar it's only about 200 feet and I saw the Yonkers 88 as I dived through the door of this um, air raid shelter. One of the flight commanders was um, Frank Gill from Auckland, who eventually came back here. I think he was Minister of Railway. God, he was red in the face and screaming at us because we were late getting off. I didn't give a damn about being late getting off. And of course, as I said, in those days it didn't make much difference if you were a bit late getting off. But one thing I remember about um, Wing Commander Kay was he always um, said, you know, cheerio, best of luck, and he was always there when we drifted back one, one after the other. Our pre-drum control was um, butterfly control, and uh, I remember they always used to call it Wifey Gorka, this is butterfly control, but the Wing Commander was always there. At one stage we did something like, I think it was six trips in nine nights. Uh, we were absolutely exhausted at the end of that time. We were so damn tired. And uh, during the winter at Feltwell, uh, um, we started to miss breakfast. You know, I thought, well, it's not worth getting up for breakfast for stay in bed. Then we decided that it wasn't worth getting up for lunch. And you didn't need the food because we weren't doing anything. But anyway, one stage there, I was living out on this farm. I had permission to live out, but they withdrew that permission because, according to what we heard, they knew in the village where we were going that night before we did. So they stopped all leave. No one could get out the gate unless they had a special you know, reason. But anyway, I still went, I still lived out. I went through a hole in the fire and walked back to the farmhouse and thought I was pretty safe back on the drum about two o'clock through the hole in the fence and got to briefing. 
but one day the, the weather was shocking. And when I got up to the aerodrome, where the hell have you been? They've been calling on the tannoy all day. Will Sergeant Wakefield please report to the crew room? I said, what the hell do they want? Well, actually, what the hell had happened was that the Scharnhorst and Neisenau made a break and they were ready to put on a raid. Well, of course, we were being slaughtered. But the weather was so bad, they kept cancelling it, cancelling it. And uh, imagine a, a black lumbering aircraft attacking a pocket battleship. I don't think I can think of anything else. Oh, Bob Fotheringham, the gung-ho pilots, quite often, run the engines up, the brakes fall, lift the tail, and let the aircraft go and never drop the tail again. Whether they thought they got off a bit quicker, I don't know. But old Bob heavily revved the, gave the engines hell on the brakes and went and tipped it over on the nose and bent. He had, had um, I was only told he had a bit of finger trouble and not being a pilot and I wasn't mixing with pilots. I don't know exactly what the trouble was and that's why Cyril went with us. He went a second pilot, but I never found out if they told him to pump the oil. <laughs> been the been the second pilot. <laughs> and and uh, I know that uh, a lot of the 75 Squadron Wellingtons had their own personal nose art. Did, did you? Yes. Um, that one that I showed you in my own book, Ned, yeah. um, I think that's got the nose art on, I don't know. It has, it's got the, um, the squirting... Yes, well, that, that, yeah, that, that was actually on my aircraft. You see, I took most of these with a box brownie. Right. Not all of them, but um, no, that was the actual wifey orca, my aircraft. Right. I'm also standing below it on a ladder. Uh, I was actually, uh, we were grabbed out in the drone to take a photograph. Well, we couldn't grab all our crew. Well, I'm up the top of the ladder and the guy at the bottom of the ladder was a fighter pilot that just dropped in to see somebody. <laughs> the, the one of uh, Cyril there, that's genuine, we were going to Berlin. And, uh, that one, we were all walking out. That was another official one. Uh, that one and the one of Cyril, I think it was, a few of them uh, were published right through the English papers. They also were published in the New Zealand papers here. I used to have the cuttings of them that my family saved. But although the, uh, the photograph wasn't genuine, because we weren't actually going to the Ruhr right then, but we were a, a squadron that was going to the Ruhr on a fairly regular basis, that was quite genuine. Right, right. So it wasn't a fake in that sense. Yeah. And with your, your nose art, who came up with the idea for that? Um, I don't know. Was it already on the plane by the time you got there or was it someone in your crew that... Oh, I, ca I can't remember that uh, because I can't tell you whether it was there. Um, see, I did 17 trips, I think, in Waifu Orca and I can't remember. I think it was there when I joined that crew, or it might have been the original aircraft and, and the pilot joined us. I'd just forgotten now. So there was always that. If, if you lost an engine, you had no, no reserves in a Wellington, really, especially if they were loaded. But the um, Mark IIs hold up on one and the later Wellingtons. You see, Wellingtons and Spitfires were the only two aircraft that went right through the war. Now the Spitfire went from a thousand horsepower Merlin to a two thousand horsepower Griffin engine, so with a full-bladed prop, and the Wellington went from um, I think it was eight hundred and fifty horsepower Pegasus to fourteen hundred Bristol Taurus. 
So you had a reserve in the later models, but not in those 1Cs. Our second veteran of the Wellington era of number 75 New Zealand Squadron is the late Nick Carter. Well, my full, full name is Morris Allington Carter, but only known as Nick. And uh, my service number, 391694. Quite left out. Okay. And you had the DFC? Yes. And. What was the other, was a Polish award? Not yet, <clears throat> not on 75 though, but these were awarded on, on a Pathfinder squadron right. that I was on later. Uh, I did a full tour on, on Wellington on 75 and then we got posted to uh, a, post, uh, a Pathfinder squadron, right. a Lancaster squadron, 156, and we did another tour on that. Okay. So okay. we did 60 trips. I was born in Palmerston North on the 1st of July 1921. Uh, and so did you grow up in Palmerston North? No. Uh, we were in Hawke's Bay when the, when the earthquake 1931. Okay. And uh, we shifted out to a place called Hamawana, just out of, out of uh, Hastings. Uh, during the Depression. The Depression was still on then, of course, as you probably know. Yep. And um, later on we moved in back to Hastings. I went to Hastings uh, Central School and then the high school for one year. And then owing to hard times, I went and worked on a sawmill. with a tailing out and um, and later on became came into Hastings and became a telegraph boy in the post office. Oh, right. And uh, I went to a went to a telegraph school, uh, and doing Morse for three months, and then to Wellington, doing a um, creed, which is a bit like a teleprinter. And I was doing it until the war broke out in 1939. And a couple of, about a week after the war broke out, we joined up. Okay. Well, just take you back slightly. Um, you mentioned that you were in the earthquake at. Uh, yeah, I was only Hawk. a baby then. Yeah. yeah. Do, do you remember anything about it or, or, or what yes, happened? Yes, I do. I, we were uh, living in the back of the Royston Hotel, which had been evacuated everyone had just walked out on it and we stayed there for uh, for quite a few months and they've been and uh, they had some accommodation outside the hotel and I remember quite distinctly until we moved out to Kamoana yeah okay and then 1939, I went into the Air Force at the age of 18. Right, and tell me about joining up. Where, where did you go to join up? And, and joined up in Wellington. And uh, we, went, we went to uh, to the uh, recruiting place about two or three days after war broke out. 
friend of mine called Ray Coppersmith. He was the same age as me. And the guy behind the counter said, he said, I think you better go home and get your mother's permission. Well, that's what we did. And uh, we really wanted to join the Navy, but they told us the same thing. So we ended up with mum saying yes, and we joined the Air Force. And what was your main <clears throat> ambition when you joined? Did you want to, f to fly? Did you want to be a pilot? or? Well, I was a... Being a telegraphist, before the war, they uh, made me a wireless operator. And uh, in 1940, we uh, went to England, and uh, after a wee while there, I managed to get the gunnery course. I was dying to get into the war, so I became a wireless operator, air gunner. Well, I stayed that way. I was quite happy, I was in a very good crew, and uh, I was still alive, so I ended the war as a wireless operator air gunner. Okay, okay. And uh, But I did quite a lot after, after I'd finished with, with uh, uh, Bomber Command, I was posted to Canada. And I spent a year with um, Transatlantic Ferry Command. Ah, right. Okay. Delivering aircraft all over the Northern Hemisphere. The war was still on then, too. Yep. And after a year of that, I came back to England and I did another two years on um, Transport Command, flying all around the Middle East and India and you, you name it. And in the end, uh, towards the end of 46, I decided I'd had enough. So I came home. Right. Okay. So it was a pretty long flying war. Definitely, definitely. Mm -hmm. I'll just take you back to um, when you joined up in New Zealand, you would have gone to Levin, I guess, for your initial training, was it, Levin? Well, the initial training was at Wigram. Oh, okay. Yeah. They didn't have any accommodation at Wigram, so we did it three months at um, uh, the Canterbury University and the students' quarters there. Yeah, and after that we got posted to uh, to England. Right. Okay. And so, um, did you board a ship in Christchurch, or did you have to come north? To Long term. Uh, what What was the the vessel you went on? On the old Tamaroa. It was a twelve thousand ton shore saville. It was it was a very nice little ship actually, and there was about two hundred of us on it. There was it. Air Force and Fleet Air Arm. And we took, I think it was seven weeks to get to Halifax, which was a great experience. It was wonderful. We, you know, we struck good weather all the way over. We got to Halifax into a 40-ship convoy. And uh, the second day out, we uh, struck a hell of a big storm. We never saw another ship till we got to Liverpool. But I found out later that quite a few of them had been sunk by the submarines, German submarines. So I was pretty lucky. Okay. And w when you uh, landed at Liverpool, wh when was this sort of what, what month of 1940? Uh, I think it was October. So the Battle of 1940. And the Battle of Britain had, it was. Uh, well, actually, I think it was an air raid on in uh, Liverpool when we arrived there. 
or the head bean I forget now and then we went I was still ground crew then and I got posted to a to a squadron on the east coast of England East Anglia which was a pretty hot spot because the Germans used to come over morning and night and strafe the place you know so I waited there until I got this gunnery course on the Isle of Man and it was my great friend that I joined up with was two other guys, a um, fellow called George Rose, Ray Cobbs with myself. And we went right through the whole work to, uh, until we got to Fultwell. Okay. And unfortunately the other two got shot down. We went into a, um, after being at um, uh, the Isle of Man with the gunnery course, were posted to uh, an operational training unit at Bassingbourne. It's a very well-known place and there was well, hundreds of guys there from all over the world. And we got posted, formed a crew there, we all crewed up and uh, we went to Felwell. And by that time we got there, it was, the war was pretty rough, you know, and uh, the casualties were very, very high. I think we lost six aircraft in one night in one part of it. And my very great friend, Coppersmith, uh, he uh, he wrote a letter to his mother the night he, he got shot down, which I have here. And uh, he was shot down on a raid on Hamburg we were on. We all did the same raid with different crews. Uh, George got shot down later in uh, over France somewhere I think it is, and I was left. Yeah. So tell me about who were who were in your crew when you first crewed up with for seventy five squadron. Uh, well, there was um, Jack Wright. He was the pilot. Uh, Charlie Kelly. He was the navigator. Uh, Ray Reynolds. He was a bomb aimer, uh, and uh, Bruce, what the hell is his name? I just, just, forget, just forget the rig under the surname now, I'll tip my tongue. And that was a, a, the Wellington crew. Yeah. Bruce Neal, N-E-A-L, yeah, that's the guy there. Yeah. He had a pretty tough time on our first trip. We were attacked over the North Sea by the JU-88 night fighter. And just as the thing happened, Bruce yelled out, dive port, which we did. I was on the Astrodome and I ducked down and got, anyway, everything went mad. It was a, I was got no idea what it was like. Well, when he, uh, we came to, we are about 100 feet off the sea, still alive, and a great big gaping hole right along the side of the aircraft. And uh, the time we'd been blown off over my head, and Bruce, the rear gunner, was completely cut off. And all his uh, oil spurting everywhere, and uh, there was no intercom. After that, he... He did a whole tour with us. He didn't want to, but he did. And then, then he went to a, 
to a gunnery school as, a, as an instructor. And unfortunately he was out one day and a wing fell off and he got killed. Wow. <laughs> that's how unlucky it was. Yeah. So when we went to the other squad, that's where we picked up Crankshaw or two other people. Right. But in those days, the losses I felt were well, very high. You know, you're lucky if you got three or four, half a dozen trips in. Huh? And why was that simply because um, the the night fighters were overwhelming, or was it the flak that was getting you guys? Or no, it was virtually the beginning of the of the real air war. You know, the the guys that had been flying on ops in 1940 and 41 had a, no opposition. Uh, well, I'm not saying no opposition, but it was a hell of a lot lighter. But in 1942 and on, things got really, really tough. And uh, the Germans, of course, were getting stronger and stronger. Their night fighters were our biggest trouble. We, we didn't know how to, or we couldn't combat them very well with what we had and consequently as you probably read in that book they, um, casualties are very very high in those days uh, in 1942 most of the targets were around the Ruhr I know that was a real hot spot, you know, and, uh, and there were short trips, four or five hours, but they were very heavily defended, and to get in there, you had a hell of a job, and to get out, you had another hell of a job. So, um, my job on Wellingtons, when we were bombing uh, places like Essen and those places, when we came to the, the target itself, it was really, really rough. And the navigator get all organised and he'd make his run, bombing run. I'd hop down into the fuselage and grab a, uh, a 40 pound photo flash. This is pretty crude in those days. And put it in the chute and wait there in the dark with a, with a uh, uh, some spare oxygen bottle on and this while Charlie said you know we're, we're approaching and he'd say steady steady right right or left left and then he'd say bomb's gone and I'd chuck this bloody thing out and it scuttle back to where I was supposed to be it's pretty uh, pretty crude and that lit up the the target area so that the photo could yeah. be taken yeah but to do that in a Wellington and that hailstorm of fire, and it was, you could just about walk on it. Uh, we got a pretty good result, and we had the photographs to prove it, you know. But it was, I don't know that I would have liked to have done another tour on Wellingtons. So, so can you tell me about the actual? Um the, the equipment you were using uh, for, for the wireless, um, as a wireless operator on the Wellingtons, what? It was a Marconi um, 
transmitter and receiver. And then we had some uh, direction finding gear as well. And um, we had all sorts of bits and pieces that they were experimenting with, which I can't remember. But I spent my, most of my time on, on Wellington. Um, I'd help the navigator if he needed it, which he didn't very often. And I spent most of my time in the Astrodome on the top as an extra pair of eyes, which came in very handy. And uh, I think the, the, the fact that we came out of that alive was the fact that we never let anyone get too near us. Yeah. Did you have your own uh, gun to man at all if you needed it? Was there beam guns or anything like that? Well, I was there as a spare gunner. If any of the other gunners got hurt, I would have topped over and taken their place. We shot down a fighter and uh, a JU, I think it was a JU-88. And uh, it was a pretty good effort. Yeah. It was a... It was a a real, uh, he didn't know where we were. He was sitting above us. Never saw us. So we just let him come along and pass us a wee bit, and then we just, the front gunner got him. Hmm. So you you did what the night fighters did to a lot of the bombers, because they used to come in under the bombers and do the old shrage music. Well, yeah, yeah well, night fighters, Jerry night fighters are very good. You had to be really alive. But uh, as the war progressed, they got better and better. And uh, I don't know that we could have, didn't do any more than we could have done. We just had a, uh, and a Wellington, you only had two guns in the front, four in the back. That's all you had. But in Lancaster, you had another pair up on top. But when you come to think of it, they didn't amount to a hell of a lot. What sort of guns were they? Uh, sweet, sweet, sweet. So that's not a big calibre weapon anyway, is it? <laughs> <laughs> Had to be fairly close. Uh, yeah. Same in the lake, there were 303s. But, um, yeah. And what about the, uh, the squadron itself uh, back at home base? Tell me about the sort of morale and, and, and what happened in the mess and all well, that sort of thing? at that stage in 1942, I don't think that we really got to know one another very well because crews were coming and going all the time, you know, and uh, uh, you'd, you'd go to breakfast in the morning and there'd see quite a few empty seats. There was never a raid that someone didn't get shot down. And consequently, you... Uh, very few cases that you had that you got to know the other people very well. You got up, had breakfast, uh, and then you had a, a night flying test. Test, And then by that time, uh, with the lunch, we had a light lunch, and then from then on, you was um, read all the who are, where we were going, and what we were going to do, and, and all that sort of thing. And then we, uh, after the, uh, what the hell did they call that? The, the briefing. Hmm? The briefing. Briefing. 
after the briefing, we the the, the, the uh, Paul and Navigator got together, and the Wallace Hopper and the Gunners went their way to the gunnery leader and the rest of it. And when that was all finished, you know, you got had a quick supper, and bingo, away you went. It was a pretty nervous time between the briefing and the actual takeoff when you were waiting around. Well, I think the most nervous time was uh, if you got in early into the briefing room, you could watch the crews coming in because there's a big map on the wall and a ribbon from your base to the target. And if it was anywhere in the Ruhr, like Essen or uh, Dewisburg or Dusseldorf, all those places, you stop and watch them, they come in and they look at them and they say, oh, Jesus, hello. It was Happy Valley, they called it. So, you know, it, wasn't, it, was, a, it was a very, very dark time. We, uh, You seemed to be living in the dark all the time, if you know what I mean. You know, you do all the few things during the day, then out you'd go, come back and do the whole thing again. And, and uh, the bad weather would come along and that would stop you flying for perhaps a day or two. But you seem to be living in sort of darkness the whole time. Yeah. And you never had time to meet, although the side of this mess, I had a lot of friends, but I didn't have them for long. And uh, we were one of the few crews that um, that survived the whole the whole tour. So we're very lucky. Well, it's it's quite sobering, really, when it, there's only a few it is crews. Really, like I mean, it's it's very hard to explain to to people who've never been there and didn't know what was going on. Have you have you been to the uh, museum at, at Christchurch? Yes, yeah. I used to be in the Air Force and I was based oh, at Wigram for a long time, yeah. Well, so. there's a, uh, a bomber command thing up in the... Did you go up there? Yep. Did you see the big Donald Duck? Yep. That's the one I brought home. I had uh, ripped it off the side and I've had it in a... rolled it up and brought it home and I was in the wardrobe for about 40 years and I... Uh, a guy, I had a pub then, and a guy came into the pub one day and uh, um, he was a, a wing commander, I think. And he was, he said to me, he said, I'm getting stuff for the museum, you got the stuff you don't want. And that would be well looked after. I thought, yeah, as a matter of fact, I have. I've got something you've probably never seen before or never see again. So I go to him and... Uh, They've got it up there, as you know, you've seen it. Yeah. And there's a photograph of the crew. Yeah. It's fantastic. Can you tell me about how, um, or who came up with the concept of, of it and how it sort of evolved to become your nose art? The, the concept of the Donald Duck. Uh, or me. Was you? Hmm. Um, we had, we were flying in an aircraft, D, it was D Donald, you know. Mind you, we were young and silly in those days, so we, we said, well, I better have something like Donald Duck on the side. So I, I scribbled out a copy of it, as I thought would be right, uh, which I've since given to Jack Wright's daughter. <coughs> and there was a, 
I gave it to one of the uh, ground crew and he did a big one and uh, we lost that we were um, we were uh, a squadron went over to a place called Milden Hall I don't know if you've heard of that have you? It's where the great race started from years ago and we had another four or five trips to do to complete our tour. One day we were sitting in the mess and it was raining, it was misty rain, no flying, and we heard an aircraft overhead and it was a Boston and it was circling around and had nowhere to land. Anyway, he had a go and crashed out of it and there was full bomb load on. Up she went, and we were in the mess, I mean, playing snooker, I think it was. And we tore outside, and of course there was bloody hell a lot of flames around. But what had happened, as it blew up, one of the motors uh, hit our parked aircraft that we had parked there, and it burnt. And old Donald Duck went up with it, so we'd have to get another one. So we waited until we got to Warboys, and we got an aircraft there called T, T Tommy. Now this chap Alf Drew, who was a great friend of his, him and his crew and, and felt well, and he used to, they used to fly in a Freddy, F for Freddy, they had something, I just forget what it was. So when we all got together at Warboys, we decided we'd have to have a Donald Duck on the side of the aircraft, but how the hell would you do it with a T Tommy? So that's where it got, Thomas Frederick Duck. And the Frederick was for Ralph Drew. And that was the one, that's the one that's in the, in the museum. And that was on the Lancaster? Yeah. Yep. Oh, yeah. right. Okay. Well, the other one was burnt up on that. Craig, yeah. Well, when you were with 75 Squadron, who was the CO at the time? Uh, would it have been Olsen? Olsen? Yeah. Yeah, Ted Olsen. Olsen. Yeah. He wasn't the CEO when we first got there though, it was uh, an English guy, I forget his name. But uh, then also again, well, he's a nice shot, lovely man. And um, one other thing that, that comes to mind, you talked about your nose art on, on the Wellington, but do you remember others at that time in the squadron that was there? Oh, not offhand now, I think they, they all had them, but... We didn't take much notice of them, but uh, yeah. ours became quite famous. On the days off, where did you go, you know, if you were going to go to the local town or a local pub around Feltwell? Well, we, we got six days leave every six weeks. But in between that, I think the big majority of us either got knocked off or we'd go to the local little pub down the road or drink in the mess. We never went never went anywhere. Yeah. We uh, all stuck together and, and I, I think that's where the sergeant's mess was good. But as um, so I say, every six weeks we got, and the majority of us went to London. Yep. Yep. You know, yeah. And then spent six days on it, <laughs> forgetting everything. <laughs> yeah. Was there a local pub for those, those yeah. days off that you... I remember one pub that uh, felt well called The Cock. A lot of us used to go there. There was another one there, I can't remember now. Yeah. But the big majority of us used to spend our time in the 
Yeah. But did you did you um, get to know the locals, the local villagers, that sort of people? Yeah, yeah, we did. Yeah, and we used to play darts in a pub and all that sort of thing. You know, that was good. But Feltwell, uh, actually, Feltwell was a peacetime station. It was comfortable. Yeah. So w- when you say Feltwell was um, uh, comfortable. Were you in uh, single-man rooms in the barracks? And no, Jack and I shared a room in the, on the offices. No, no, I'm sorry. Yeah, it um, felt well. We got into the same space. That was in the, the main building. It was very comfortable, two to a room. But all the other guys were in barracks. Yeah. Was it sort of the senior crews who got into the good rooms and you had to wait your turn... To get in no, there, not or? really. You have to be cunning. <laughs> Beat the other guy. Yeah. Yeah. It's the same when I was in the Air Force. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. But, but as I say, felt it was very, in that way it was comfortable. Were you at the, uh, I think it was the Felt War Mess when Popeye Lucas uh, got the, foot, put the footprints on the ceiling? Yeah, well, every mess had those. Oh, really? Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, the guy would lie on a table and you'd all lift him up. And he'd walk across, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you got into the mess games like that occasionally, or? Well, the soldiers' mess, particularly at Feltwell, was a real, a real hard case mess. Of course, everyone was a sergeant in those days, you know. And we'd have some wild parties in there, and pour pints of beer into the piano and all this sort of thing, you know. And the guy would be there one night, and the next night he wouldn't be. It's a, uh, did you have any personal mascot or good luck charm? Uh, yes, I did actually. I had a little, a little Hastings High School badge, Arkina, on it. And God, I think I gave it away when I came home to one of the family. That's what I had. Right. Uh, Jack had a, a scarf and a safety bin, would you believe? I think that all the others had something, but I can't tell you. Well, Crankshaw's Bell. Tell me about that. Well, when we went to Milden Hall, we were billeted in one of these stately homes. And that, well, there's quite a crowd, if you will, two or three to a room. Beautiful old home. And of course, in those days, there was a bell pull at the front door. And when you, want, when you went there and, and you wanted to, to, uh, to, to go in, you pulled this bell away in the distance, a bell rang. Anyway, we tracked us down, we found all these bells, and they were beautiful bells, or kind of big, uh, bronze or brass, with a spring on it. So old Cranky grabbed one. He's a very hard case. I love old Cranky. Real hard case, and um, every time that we got over the target, Cranky would ring the bell, and that's why we long. Jack would say to him, "Don't be too bloody long with that bell. They'll, they'll get a fix on us." You know? My sincere thanks to my co-host Glenn Turner, and to my guests Jack Wakefield and the late Nick Carter. In the next episode of Aki Aki Kia Kaha, 
the number 75 Squadron story, I hope to bring you the story of the short Sterling era.